Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My guests today are Christine Hodgson from Capgemini and Daniel Callahan from Thomson Reuters. We're going to talk about the benefits of volunteering and doing something with your company which takes you outside of the day-to-day job. We'll hear some very personal reflections on the importance of talking about our mental health. And we'll hear some advice for anyone starting out in their career or anyone in the mood for a change of career. Let's get to the conversation. Christine, Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Now, Christine, I'd like to start with you. Welcome. You wear a couple of hats. You're chair of Capgemini here in the UK, and you also chair the Careers and Enterprise Company. And I want to talk a lot about that because uh, everyone listening will have a memory of their own careers, advice and, uh, and journeys. But first of all, as I do with all our guests, I, uh, I like to quiz them on their first ever job. So before Capgemini, uh, as you were growing up, the very first time you ever did a job. Well, my first job was actually as an egg collector for my father because I I grew up in Lancashire on a poultry farm. So we had 10,000 chickens and my first job was to help him. So you're growing up in the countryside, so here in Britain. Yep. Okay. And then off uh, ed- education began, Loughborough, uh, you were studying at university. But I do wonder when the first uh, first signs of a business career started to beckon. Do you remember? Well, um I remember as a child, my father actually saying, don't, uh, don't ever work for yourself. He was a small businessman and he was, you can remember in the, uh, in the 70s when tax rates were very high and inflation was very high. Uh, he said, you want to work for the government, you want to go and get yourself an index linked pension. <laughs> and that was his advice. But I went to university to study banking and I didn't enjoy the course at all. And so I changed course as quickly as I could. And the only course I could change to without going right back to the beginning was accounting. Mm. So I found myself in year two doing an accountancy course. And the first question in week one of of that second year was, OK, next year is a year out. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go into industry or are you going to go into the profession? I didn't know what either meant. I thought the profession sounded fun. And I found myself on a year out with what was then Coopers and Librand. Yes. And that is um, and that's where when I graduated, I went back to and I became a chartered accountant. And, uh, you know, the rest is, is history. Yeah. Indeed, and you've been with Capgemini, and I should uh, fill in uh, fill in the gaps. Uh, Cap, a global leader in consulting, technology services, and digital transformations. So I guess globally, over two hundred thousand people. That's right. And on that particular aspect of your role, leading on corporate social responsibility globally, give us a sense of how that function has evolved, in particular in terms of how it's perceived, how it's seen. At board level? I think that's a really good question, Ollie, because, you know, when I was younger, I think CSR it was something that was very much seen as discretionary activity. And when I was asked a couple of years ago to lead on this for the group, the first thing I did was I went off to Paris armed with a series of questions to to sort of test the, the group CEO and, uh, on how seriously are we really going to take this? So will there be occasions when CSR will trump profit? And uh, and I was very encouraged by the, the answers that I got. I, I do think now it's um, a lot of businesses are putting it at the heart of what they're doing rather than it be uh, an add-on that they think they ought to do to please customers or prospective customers or employees. I think it, it, it goes way beyond just, just saying... Um, 
you know, it's a it's a box ticking. I do think it's changed profoundly in, in recent years, and certainly, I I, I I would have been very unhappy taking the role if it was just that sort of box ticking and, sort and of tokenistic. Poli- poli- yeah, exactly. I've been looking quite a bit at your work, particularly with our um, friends at Business in the Community around sort of um, this sort of pride of place. And Blackpool yeah. is somewhere you've focused quite a bit of attention. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you why and particularly uh, why that matters to you, but particularly w- w- um, what you think can be changed. Well, so Business in the Community has got this initiative to focus on certain parts of of Britain where business can really help in the local community. So it's going right back to the sort of Prince, the Prince of Wales vision when he established the charity. And Blackpool is one of those places that features on every league table that you don't want to feature on. It features right at the top, whether that's around drugs, alcoholism, lack of aspiration of young people, youth unemployment, you name it. Unfortunately, Blackpool doesn't feature uh, well at all. I went to school in Blackpool, uh, went to secondary school there, and I have huge affection for the town. I think it is uh, a jewel in, in, uh, in England, and I really think that business can help make a difference. So I chair this, uh, on behalf of business in the community, a Pride of Place partnership, which brings together public sector, private sector, the voluntary sector. So very much working with local stakeholders to see what can we do to turbocharge the tourism offer, to bring in with investment, to try and address some of the uh, underlying social issues there, the big problems with housing that's attracting um, the wrong sort of residents. There's landlords that are making um, uh, obscene yields out of substandard accommodation. There's health issues on the back of that. There's a lot of transients in schools, loads of issues. And the idea is that by working together on on a few tangible um, tangible things, the business working with uh, the local stakeholders can make a difference. And I believe passionately that um, we must have these fo- this focus on some of these areas outside of London. I think you know we've got an industrial strategy that that shows that stark difference between London and the rest of the country. And I think that, you know, if ever you wanted to a litmus paper test on disengagement outside London, you've only got to look at the the referendum vote. And I think now that business is really alert to the fact that we've got to go and do tangible things in areas like Blackpool, which really need some help. Yeah, it does make me reflect. I mean, alongside your work um, chairing Capgemini, um, you know, you are investing your time, giving your time um, onto these other um, important uh, causes, including uh, careers and enterprise. Is there an extent to which you feel those other activities help you do a better job? uh, I I, I think they all become, uh, for me, they all become uh, intertwined because... For example, the sort of conversations now that I have with clients is about what can we do together to, you know, create, for example, real new apprenticeships in some of these areas. We've been working, one of our clients is Anglian Water. And as you know, Anglian Water was the responsible business of the year last year for business in the community. They've been doing the same sort of thing that we're doing in Blackpool. They've been doing it in Wispeach. And I've been working with Peters to create new apprenticeships for, for Capgemini in Wispeach. And I think, you know, increasingly businesses must collaborate on these things. And so, um, and it's the same on the Careers and Enterprise Company. You know, the Careers and Enterprise Company was set up to help inspire and prepare young people for the world of work. Well, any employer 
in Britain has uh, has an interest in that agenda. Yeah, and what's interested me on that is, you know, the big vision, I guess, from government initially putting, uh, putting the funding in to prepare and inspire young people for this changing world of work. And then in reality, that's taken quite a few forms, hasn't it? Well, well, when we um, when we were originally uh, asked to, to to set up, the the focus was on connecting businesses and schools because lots of businesses do great things in schools, but the interaction was at best patchy. There were some parts of the country that didn't have anything, uh, and there were some schools, perhaps like in Tower Hamlets, that were just flooded with with interest, so much so they didn't actually know what to do with the help. And so initially we were asked to sort of coordinate that support. And as time has gone on and as the Department for Education's career agenda has evolved, in the new strategy that was launched in December 2017, the government asked us to broaden our scope and to, re- and to focus on how can you help schools deliver world-class careers provision and based on a gold standard that's now identified as the eight Gatsby benchmarks. And and that's what we're doing. So encounters between businesses and schools are part of that. You know, work experience in, in the uh, is part of that. But it goes beyond. It's about, you know, how do you give young people exposure to further education, higher education? How do you give them personal guidance? How do you link all this into the curriculum? So various other things. Mm. Um, and so the scope has increased quite significantly since, since we were first established. And so given how quickly um, everything in the world of technology is moving, um, you also spend some of your time, obviously, with students in schools and so on and so forth through that role at the Careers and Enterprise Company. How do you even begin to give a piece of advice uh, to a young person, and perhaps a new starter at Capgemini? You know, they see their own careers evolving before their eyes. So um, I, think, I think it's a great question. I mean, if, you, if I think back to my childhood, I remember my career's advice was from the maths teacher who said, Christine, you're good at maths, you must be an accountant. Um, as it happened, that's what, that's what, that's what did materialise. But that was the sum total of my career's advice. I've seen you describe your career's advice as going into a hut at lunchtimes and picking <laughs> out a few pamphlets. That's exactly right, probably trying to avoid the cold. Um, and it was really, um, really basic. And I think now it's less about trying to say to a young person, you're good at this, so therefore you must do that. I mean, actually, we're all going to work for um, a long, long time and we're all probably going to pursue lots of different lots of different careers. So really what we want to do is just open young people's eyes to the possibilities out there, to show them the relevance of education and actually just excite them, to excite them to go out there and explore. Yes, so they're not dreading it. Not dreading it, not fearing it. So, and, and actually, that's when we do work experience. You know, you watch these young people come into the office, into this, these big, big offices that look very um, formidable, and just actually start to demystify it for them and say, look, you know, we do some really exciting things. Just, and, and this is how the sort of things that you're learning at school, how it can be relevant for, for a career. Of course, we, you know, we don't know today what the careers will look like in, in, in 10 years or, or five years, 10 years, um, it seems quite a long time these days. And, and you mentioned also about Capgemini employees. Well, for all employees in whichever sector that we're sitting in, I think everybody realised now you've got to be prepared to upskill or reskill because actually you will become quite irrelevant if you, if you don't. Or if you stop learning. You stop learning. So that curiosity, that, you know, I call it, I'm sure there's not a word, but that sort of learnability is, um, 
is, is essential. And I think just saying to young people, you don't have to have decided exactly what you want to do, but just give yourself the most chances by by learning as much as you possibly can while you're um, in school. Okay, well, at this point, I want to bring in Daniel. Daniel Callahan, welcome to The Lens. Hello, how are you? Very well. Did you get much careers advice at school? No, very, very little. I remember going uh, to like a career advice centre and I, th- I did like this funny little test where you put in your interests and you score yourself and all the rest of it. And I think I got myself as a broadcaster, yes. which I'd never, ever considered myself to be. I was like, how do they know I've got a good voice if I want to be a broadcaster? But no, my career's advice wasn't great, to be honest. And... Well, I do want to go back, though, to the yeah. start because, um, you know, you've... Um... I'm fascinated by what you're doing today, but we're going to get to that in a second. So I asked Christine, and I'm going to ask you, your first ever job, what was it and where was it? I was a taxi controller in Chelmsford. So I was the one picking up the calls, taking the requests and dispatching the taxis. I was doing that from the age of 15, I think, and I was working evenings. So I literally... This sounds very involved. This is, like, yeah. this is like a beautiful mind. This yeah. is extraordinary. I thought you were going to say something like a paper boy or something. Uh, I, did, I did do paper run as well, but the taxi controller was the first thing. Uh, at my age, it was just a case of make as much money as you can while yeah. you can. Yeah, and so in terms of the journey that you've been on, Thomson Reuters, one of the world's... I love the way it's described as one of the world's most trusted providers of answers. So you're helping professionals make confident decisions and run better businesses, I suppose. It's another global company. It's Canadian. And your work, um, social media specialist. So when you're in the coffee shop or the pub, how do you explain that uh, to your friends? (laughs) Yeah, basically, I'd I'd say that I don't sit on Facebook all day, but it's basically looking after all the paid activity, looking at our social media content, what's relevant, making sure it's relevant for the audience, you know, what's going to come up how creative we can be how can we make lawyers more interested in social media how can we can get them on it because they should be everyone should be on it in some way shape or form because when we when we hear thompson reuters we think news trusted yeah. information and reuters, so on, but actually yeah. it, it's so much bigger and in fact the bit that you're in is entirely different yeah yeah we sell essentially uh, technology and services and information to law firms to tax and accounting firms and all those bits so it's so different from reuters so when people hear thompson reuters they automatically assume reuters and you tell them this whole other way world but we're incredibly blessed to have Reuters as a news hub to get all that information from. Yeah now chatting to you um, in the run-up and reading about um, some of what you've been doing I know you describe yourself as a mental health activist and I hope you don't mind me asking often there is a personal yeah. uh, story behind uh, some campaigning and, yeah. and so for you how did that um, how, how did that kick in? Yeah so going back actually to the career process when I was 14 15 I didn't see a life past the age of 17 I'd actually planned to take my own life around my 17th birthday um so for me it was just a case of I don't know why I'd made a plan but it was just kind of get through high school and then we'll see what happens so I actually never saw a career so when I was at high school I just kind of coasted through I'm lucky that I'm fairly intelligent (laughs) I got kind of B's and C's at GCSE but it was kind of a case of not there's not going to be a life after 17 so don't even worry thinking about it um, fortunately, didn't happen. Um, and then I went on to get therapy and counselling. And I actually went to college when I was 18. And I did a print publishing course, which was graphic design, journalism and photography. I really wanted to be a photojournalist after kind of the whole traumatic experience that I went through. Um, and then I t- took a year out. I went and did this counselling, life coaching, uh, public speaking course for a year. And involved in that trip was a trip to India to work in an orphanage for two weeks which is an incredible experience and really eye-opening as well Um, and it was actually on the course where a woman came over from America and stressed the importance of education and said you need to go to university if you have 
the chance to so just go it doesn't matter what course you do just go and go and get involved so I did a degree in photography um, and I'd never once at this stage even considered a sort of a role in a corporate company at all um fortunately i knew reuters because of the photojournalism that they do um and i saw a job application come up at reuters in the customer service and my idea was if i could get in there i might just be able to find one or two people and sort of make a hedgeway um but then i discovered this love for marketing um which is how I got into the involved that I am now. But then going back to the mental health stuff, um, it was kind of around when I was 25, 26, when I started at Thomson Reuters where I saw a calm campaign that was um, the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 was suicide. So I was like, I have personal experience here and if I can share my story and help one or two people along the way, I'll do it. And this is the campaign against living miserably. Yes. So this is a charity. It's called Calm and, and you saw some of their campaigning and did you end up working with them directly or was that something inspired your work at Thomson? Not directly. It was just a case of... I felt just a calling to do something about it and specifically in the workplace as well. So I decided that um, I rallied some very uh, lovely people around me, the VP of HR. I went up to him and said, if I shared a story about me wanting to kill myself, <laughs> am I going to lose my job <laughs> as a result of that? Um, and he was like, you've got my full backing. This is an amazing campaign. Please do it. So I ended up writing a blog that went on our, on our internal uh, internet system at Roy Thomson Reuters. And it's now one of, I think it's still one of the most viewed blogs on our internet Um and the, just the response I got was completely overwhelming. I was getting calls and emails from India, Australia, South Africa, all over the world. And it was just like, wow, we need to do something more here. Yeah, and, I, and I'd like to share that with, yeah. our, with our listeners. I've also seen an extraordinary campaign around this phrase, this is me, where yes. some of your colleagues are just very open about their own journeys and stories. What advice would you give to um, someone like Christine, who's chairing a um, you know, many thousand person organisation about how you make it a more welcoming environment to talk about your mental health yeah of course I think it is all obviously a cultural aspect and making sure that it is a place where people feel comfortable and you know free to be able to talk about what is on their mind and what they're going through and I think that you know comes from the top down but also the grassroots up I think in my example um, you know having someone like myself in Reuters was great because it was kind of grassroots meeting someone at the top and kind of being able to combine that experience together and that's ultimately how we got the this is me campaign sort of off the ground um but I think it for me, it all just starts with personability. So like I've been raised to treat the janitor with the same respect as the CEO. So I make sure that I try and speak to the cleaners or whatever. And considering I was a cleaner as well, it's just well, nice I was to have someone say, to talk to. Seen your, <laughs> I've seen been cleaned as well. Yeah, Dave, well we're, uh, you are connected on that. And I saw actually one of the first things that was in a school. Do you think, um, tough question, I guess, do you think there would have been any intervention in those earlier years um, that could have you know made some form of difference to you I think unfortunately when I was growing up I just felt like it was a complete taboo subject I didn't I didn't think anyone would understand I didn't think anyone would realize or begin to comprehend what was going on in my head and I thought it was just me and I was in my own little world and was there anyone you were sharing that with nope no, so I didn't. The first time I shared it was after I attempted to take my own life. Um, fortunately, a friend arrived at my house. Um, so I'd planned it so that no one would know where I was, which, if you look into the research of suicide, the people who actually do go through with it are very much likely the people who put their affairs in order, don't tell anybody. Um, and I was, when, when I look on reflection of that, I was one of those cases. And it just so happened that a friend turned up at my house about. 30 minutes after I tried it and I told him for the first time and the relief and the weight that physically fell off my shoulders when I started speaking to him was just kind of unreal basically and I was like oh my god I can talk about this and you're just sitting there accepting it and it was unburdened yes Were people very shocked when you told them because yeah. was it did it come as a sort of complete surprise to them that you had been so 
Yeah, well, well, I mean, I only told him when I was 17 and then I told a select few people um, and then I made a decision on my 21st birthday to tell my parents and my grandparents. So really not a lot of people knew. I think maybe like five or ten people knew before I was like 22 maybe. And then I kind of went more publicly with it when I was 24, 25 and everyone just said we had no idea you would have been going through that like at all. And I think that's the dangerous thing is that I grew up learning how to put on a mask or how to put on an act so quickly um, and it's just something that, you know, you just go through. How did your parents react to that? They were both really shocked and they were both really surprised and obviously very upset and equally upset that they felt I couldn't speak to them. But at my age, it was just a case of I didn't want to burden them. And I think that's the strange thing with, like, really like clinical depression and mm. depression in general is the fact that you feel like the burden. And I think suicide is completely sort of misinterpreted in the sense that like when I was 17, my thought of me killing myself was no one's going to have to worry about me anymore. Mm. It was it was a it was a selfless thing in my head. It was a thing of like no one's going to have to worry about all my issues and this that and the other. And that's for me. And speaking to other people who's gone through the same thing, that appears to be the, the reoccurring theme. It's just your your way of thinking is completely reversed, if you like. But when you look back, was there any impetus that actually started? you feeling the way that you felt when you look when you look back at other with the circumstances or yeah there were there were circumstantial stuff that sort of happened throughout my life but I think you know there's not much different to sort of anyone else who's kind of been in my shoes if you like but I think it's just a way of how you process things and the way that you deal with things in my case I've always been a very extroverted person in school I was a massive social butterfly and had friends sort of in every group if you like but it was just a case that I just felt like everything was in my head and I felt very isolated and alone. And I think as a guy as well, to share your emotions or feelings, especially 15, 16 years ago, I mean, bullying enough was bad, bad enough on the school ground, let alone telling people the way you were feeling. So, And I think that's the culture that we're kind of trying to break down now. And Calm, as you mentioned, are doing a fantastic job of that, of like creating all these different campaigns where you're being able to speak what you're actually feeling. Right. Because I'm sure parents listening to this, like, you know, I'm a, I've, I have one... Uh, 12 year old 12 year old boy mm. and you know as you're speaking I'm thinking crikey would I be able to detect signs in uh, in George if he felt like that and yeah so I it's it's, it's just sort of fascinating the fact that mm. you, you were able to sort of cover that out from even the people very close to you yeah and again it wasn't my thinking was that I don't want to bother them again it doesn't sound logical at all but my thinking at the time was my mum's got stuff going on I'll, I'll just leave her, leave her be. I'm sure I could figure it out on my own. I think it's that kind of culture of stiff upper lip, like mm. get on with it, sort of yeah. thing, man up, those phrases. And when we, um, when we, and obviously these are parallel conversations, when we think of our physical health, mm. there are certain things we know can improve our physical health in yeah. terms of regular exercise, all these things, yeah. you know. Are there, are there certain things that even today you're conscious that you do to, yeah. to, to keep your mental health in shape? Massively. So sleep is a massive one for me. I... I require at least seven or eight hours of sleep a night, otherwise I'm a really cranky and really unproductive person the next day. Um, and we've kind of got into this culture now where it's like the hustle, you know, work, work hard and all the rest of it. And it's almost people have bragging rights depending on which part of the city you're working of how little sleep they have. And I'm like, it's not, that's not something you should be boasting about. Like, I want to boast about how much sleep I got the exactly, other day sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's completely sort of, again, misinterpreted and misunderstood thing of how sleep is so important for your mm. mental well-being. And Christine, how do you then create the culture in Capgemini as an example, which encourages people to take care of themselves, I guess? Yeah. There, and, and particularly practically, are there things you have put into place, things you've done? 
So I think there's a couple of things we're trying to do. Firstly, on the mental health generally, we've been encouraging people to speak up. And I think actually by people being willing to speak about their own circumstances, it is a m- massive um, enabler to the whole conversation and, and, and destigmatizing it. On the practical thing, to your point, we do simple things like just having the... Um, the mobile health checker where people can go and stand on a machine and get their heart rate and, and see this, that and the other. I mean, simple things. Or or people, groups have done uh, contests, uh, gamification on, on things like how far they're going to walk or, you know, let's have a campaign about how many steps we're going to do and all just s- small things, yeah, just try, trying to raise the consciousness. But but I, I, I really believe... Um, very firmly in the sort of linkage between physical and, 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 mm. and mental health. And I am, I totally agree with you about sleep. I think so many, sleep has so many um, beneficial qualities, not least when we talk about, you know, people who are trying to lose weight. I mean, actually, we know that you know, there's proof that if mm. you don't get much yeah. sleep, then the chances are you're going to want to eat more because actually your blood sugar, blood sugar will be... Yeah. Yes. No, so, so, um, and I, so I'd really think that, you know, a healthy body and healthy mind is yeah. very much connected. And even, and even on the sleep thing as well, like there's research that says if you eat before you sleep, it's really, really bad for the digestive system. So you need to make sure that you have, I think it's like two or three hours yeah, before, between, you, before you sleep right. that you should be eating. So, so I'm going to try and link these two um, subjects here. And I'm going to imagine we have, uh, you know, a blank sheet of paper around schools, in particular schools and colleges. Are there things that you two think that we ought to be teaching and developing that, frankly, in your personal experiences, we don't seem to be? What do we have to get better at? Who would like to have a first crack at that? I think one of the things for me, I mean, I have visions sort of for my own charity, my own kind of workshops and things like that. And I've been really fortunate to go to India, South Africa, Uganda, and I've worked with so many different charities and orphanages. And I was in Uganda last August working with a charity that specifically works with kids with with HIV and AIDS, because in Uganda, it's seen that if you have HIV and AIDS as a child, you're more or less sort of just like dead essentially so it's kind of this charity specifically works with them and through my work there and the kids are just absolutely phenomenal you these kids who work they've got nothing they walk five miles a day Mm. to and from school um in literally no shoes and these kids are just crying out for an education and they're Mm. so thankful for it as well and one of the projects i would love to do is essentially take a group of students who are you know either not doing well in school or just completely unmotivated and take them to somewhere like that and go, look, this is the Mm. other side of the world. This is how your life could be. Acknowledge where you are now. Appreciate what you have. Mm. And your thinking there is around, you know, empathy, but also gratitude, I suppose. Yeah, massively. One of my my things, one of my key skills that I learned for my own sort of mental health and mental resilience was was the appreciation of gratitude, of just like, you know, I woke up this morning and I have a bed. I woke up this morning and I'm in the house. I woke up this morning and there's food in the fridge. Really, really basic things, really things that we take for granted, but essentially things that, you know, 
people don't have on a day-to-day basis. Okay, Christine, feel free to go somewhere completely well, different with well, your no, answer. Well, no, but I think even just, um, you know, you say, wouldn't it be great to sort of show them situations in, in Africa? But actually, I think getting young people, not only giving them work experience that we've just been speaking about, but also getting them to volunteer in, mm. in, in their local community. Oh, yeah, community. no, it doesn't, ha- them, doesn't even yeah, have to be Africa, yeah, anywhere, to, anywhere where there's yeah, poverty. And, and getting them to be part of the community and getting... So I think not, not only does that help their their social skills and interpersonal skills, but actually will open their eyes to some of the um, the disadvantage that's on the doorstep. Yeah. And I think generally, to your point about, um, you know, schools being helping young people with education around uh, nutrition. Uh, I mean, let's face it, obesity is a big issue in, in this country. And I think the younger that we can educate young people about healthy eating, exercise, then all of that is going to be um, yeah. beneficial to them in... Basic um, life skills. Basic life skills. Yeah. Um, if we go back to your um, CSR role, Christine, when Capgemini employees give their time to serve their communities, what would you say the company, Capgemini, gets out of that? Or have I missed the point by asking the question? No, no, I think um, I think there is a real business benefit. I think that our people develop um, other skills by actually not just doing the day job, but by getting out there, seeing other situations, developing their interpersonal skills, um, and they get a huge pleasure out of it, and it's very motivational. And I think if we were an organisation that didn't allow them to go and volunteer, I think we'd be pretty devoid of employees pretty quickly. Right. Now, Daniel, I want to ask you on this subject about people making a difference. Mm. Uh, one of the ways that we have crossed paths is through this brilliant organisation, One Young World. Yes. And now this is connecting people um, in many different countries. Yeah. Just remind us what it is, because I think more people should know about it. So One Young World is a fantastic charity, and essentially what they do is they put on an event that happens every year. The year just gone, it was in uh, Netherlands. The year before that, it was in Colombia. But basically, every year, it's all around the world. And basically, they bring a whole heap of uh, students, young adults adults uh, who are doing incredible things all over around whether that be about uh, engineering works that's helped uh, a community or like technology advances that are really sort of making a difference for young mothers Um, and it's just an amazing place to be an amazing place to connect with people who are doing so much incredible things and it's just incredibly inspiring. I'm really struck by how your international experiences have shaped Mm. who you are and how Mm. you've evolved. Um, Have you got any questions for Christine, having heard some of her uh, story? Well, it's funny actually, because I was speaking at a mental health conference not long ago and we were talking about the whole corporate responsibility uh, piece and specifically with young people and I said, you know, this is, you know, a thing that the younger generation will be looking at when they go seek employment, are you doing anything? And my my question was, like, how are you proving it that you are doing it because you want to do it and not because you're supposed to be seen to be doing it? Because the younger generation are woke and they will smell yeah. that stuff <laughs> from yeah. a mile off. So my question for you is, how, how do you kind of show that you're doing it because you want to be doing it rather than because it's... I think I, 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 I think it's a really good question. I think you can smell very quickly those companies that are that are just putting a veneer over um, these topics and those that are taking it really seriously. And I think that the best testament for us, we're a people business, is for the prospective uh, employees to go and talk to talk to existing colleagues and mm. just go and ask them, you know, what is it like to work for us. Um, 
do we take these issues seriously? Are you allowed to volunteer or is it just a, you know, a policy that's yeah. lo- locked tightly in the bottom drawer? And and for me, the best advert for us is um, our existing employees. And I think that's the best, best test of authenticity. Mm. Um, whenever I go and do a, s- a speech in schools, I always take with me one of our apprentices because they are relatable role model. And if I can get it such that the apprentice went to the school that we're speaking in, mm. then it's fa- it's the jackpot. Yeah. Because they stand there, they've been out of school for a couple of years, and they talk with such passion mm. about working for Capgemini. Um, and by the end of it, the audience is um, absolutely bombarding them with questions. And I think, you know, apprenticeships is a classic, isn't it, where mm. today... I still feel like it's the best kept secret that, uh, in Britain. Mm. I think they are a, a real alternative to just going straight to university and doing a degree. We partner with Aston University and we were the first company ever to do degree apprenticeship. Mm. So this is the best of both worlds. Yeah, mm. and, the, and the first cohort, 64% of them graduated with a first, which was double the on-campus Results. It's not even graduated, graduated with the first. They graduated with the first. These young people, so after the, the five years of the apprenticeship, they'd been working, they'd been earning money, they'd had real on-the-job experience and they'd got their degree in technology. And they, the graduation ceremony, they stood up, they were so articulate. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's those sort of young people who... Um, who I want prospective employees to talk to mm. because they are they, they sell us better than ever I could or a web page could. So, so I'm going to ask you both to imagine going back to your uh, schools and I'd like you to give your former self a piece of career advice. Uh, so, um, so back for you, Daniel. What would you say to Daniel Callahan? Uh, my thing is just always look at the opportunity that's available. Like, Don't think that you're limited to what you see because, again, like I said, I didn't think I'd make it alive, uh, you know, from the age of 17, let alone be in a position that I am now. And my piece of advice would always be, if you don't ask, you don't get, essentially. So Excellent. look for that opportunity. Excellent. Christine, back to Blackpool. Mine was similar. I would say aim high. Um, I I really had no clue when I left what I wanted to do. And I think I would have been, you know, quite happy settling. And it was only because people along the way sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said you know, you could do more or go and take this opportunity. And I, I perhaps wish that um, a bit earlier I'd appreciated to aim high. If we say to the 15-year-old Christine, um, you will one day chair uh, a hugely successful company in, uh, you know, heavily related <laughs> to the field of technology, what does, what does um, Christine say? I'll take that. Yeah, would you? <laughs> that would have appealed at that point. I'll take that, yeah. But you wouldn't have told them they were talking nonsense. No, I, I just said, uh, I'll take that, thank you. Okay, good. Well, that's not an accident then. <laughs> okay, very quick um, uh, final question to you uh, both. Somebody who you would love to meet uh, for coffee. Uh, Daniel, who would you meet? Mine would be uh, Dwayne Johnson mm. or The Rock. The Rock. The Rock, who is more f- famously known as. I just think he's an incredible human being. Um, he's had his own battles of depression. He's just had the most phenomenal, interesting life, and I'd just love to meet him in person. Excellent. I, did that, that, I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed you would have said that, but that's, that's a good one. Christine? Well, my heart would always say um, Robert Redford because for, ever since I was <laughs> knee high, I thought he was gorgeous. But um, but my my head would tell me that it would be quite interesting to uh, have a coffee with Bill Gates. Mm. I 
I've had the pleasure of listening to him uh, in an auditorium, but I'd really like to talk to him about his views on technology, but also the social issues. Yeah, I agree. We'd love to meet him. Uh, nothing against The Rock, but uh, <laughs> maybe we could all meet. Uh, well, OK, we, um, we reached the end of our time together, but I, I, I do have a final tricky question for you each, and I hope we'll have time uh, to include this. But Daniel, I just wonder if someone's been listening to this and thinking either they themselves or someone close to them, um, they, they have a concern about their mental health, mm. you know, and they maybe want to talk it through or just just um, just get on top of that a bit. Yeah. Anything practical that you would just put out there? Yeah, of course. I mean, the most obvious thing is just talk. Like, the worst thing you can imagine happening from talking won't happen. <laughs> and even if, it, even if that worst thing does happen, you know how to then move forward from that. I think my thing was that, you know, I was so dreading what people would think of me or people would just think I was peculiar. And then I said it and none of that stuff came true. Um, and if you're and if you're concerned about someone, just ask that person for a coffee, ask that person to talk. And even if, even if you have to ask that person two or three times, like, are you really okay? Let's be real, like, let's talk. There was a campaign a little while ago that said ask twice. Um, and just something very simple like that, I think, can make massive headway. Okay, no, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Kristen, I'm going to ask you a stinker of a final question, which is somebody listening that really feels that they're in the wrong career, that they need a change. How would they even begin to navigate their way onto something new, out of something they're in? I think it's a great question. I think that given how long we're all going to work for, I would say don't uh, don't just sit there. Really be proactive about thinking about what else you can do. And... Don't be afraid to reskill, go back to square one, do something completely different. Uh, I think the most important thing, we all spend a lot of time at work and the, it's a dreadful feeling when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to go to work. And I, many moons ago, I, I've, I was doing one particular role that I really disliked before my Capgemini days. And... Um, I remember that awful Monday morning feeling of thinking, oh, no, you know, I've got five days of this. And I would say if you find yourself in that situation, um, just do something about it. I think there is plenty of opportunities out there, plenty of opportunities to reskill and uh, just 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 go and uh, be curious about other things. And don't, don't be afraid. Just mm. uh, as long as you're going to give something 100% of your effort, then I, I think that, you know, lots to be excited about don't 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 fear change i think a lot of us a lot of us are always quite reticent to make change but actually on the whole it's quite an exciting journey on top of that as well one of my sort of my key phrases that i say to people is that we often get told it's survival of the fittest in reality it's those most adaptable to change and that's that's one of the things that I tell people, especially with Chris. I feel like it's never too late to learn something new. And, you know, those who are able to look at change in a positive positive way are often the ones who get further. Excellent. And just if I if I could just link back to, to something that you know Daniel was saying about um I think if you find yourself in a in a job where you're actually feeling quite stressed. I mean, I always use the word stress quite carefully because I think there's a very big difference between stress and pressure. Mm. Many of us thrive under pressure. But stress, when things feel out of your control and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up and 
I think stress is quite threatening to your health. And if you find yourself in those situations, I would say, you know, you've really got to stop and take stock of what you yeah. can do to, to get out of that situation because I think that then leads to all sorts of, uh, of issues. Um, and uh, so don't think you've got to stick with a situation that is that is stressful. You know, I, I think, you know, you talked about people almost bragging about, like, how little sleep they get. Oh, you know, I'm so stressed. But actually, it's... Um, it's really not healthy. Yeah. It's precious healthy, but stress isn't. And, mm. you know, stop and change something if you are feeling like that. Well, you have both made me very uh, conscious of the number of conversations we must not have every week. Mm. Um, you know, we, we walk past and we don't stop and say, are you really OK? Or is everything going all right at work? And so on. So uh, huge amounts of food for thought. Thank you very much indeed. Daniel Callahan, Christine Hodgson. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks. That was The Lens, hosted by me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe in iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme supported by Fujitsu. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter. Music and editing by Adam Smythe. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.